in five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Danielle. And this is Daniel. And I'm Carla, and we are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Wait, do you know what a Hoosier is? Nope. Uh, nope. Shit. I'll look it up, I promise. We tell true crime stories with some random connection to our home state of Indiana, so come listen. You can also... Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at Hoosier Homicide. You can also rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, as well as Podbean. We also have a MySpace. No one's come to visit it yet. <laughs> and for honest to goodness, stay out of the corn. I like the MySpace thing. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> All right, before I do get started, I have to put out this little disclaimer right here, because people love taking what I you know, say out of context or whatever, but we are going to touch on some sensitive shit here. We're going to talk about the American Civil War. This is going to be part of the episode because it has a lot to do with Jesse James and who he was and why he did what he did. Slavery is a very shitty part of our American history. You know, nobody's proud of it, you know, and that goes along with the uh, Irish slavery, the Chinese slavery, and the almost complete annihilation of the Native American people here uh, as well. For those of you who are not familiar with the American Civil War that much, you know, if you're from out of the country and stuff like that, I am going to give you a little bit of knowledge along as we go. It was a war that killed 620,000 Americans within four years. It was a war that was literally, you know, brother against brother. And when they say that, they are not exaggerating because that's exactly how it was. You know, I just had to say that, get that out of the way. And uh, I am going to give a couple little shout outs here real quick. Got to say what's up to Holly Weird Paranormal. If you have not heard that podcast, I highly suggest it. It's really, really cool. Um, Murder and such. Uh, and of course, something's not right. Got to give a shout out to them. Uh, Olivia and Tashana down there in Nashville. Still loving their podcast. They do great things. Uh, also, uh, Caravan, the Library of Lore. It's a newer podcast. It's fucking awesome. It's really cool. It's very conversational. Really, really cool topics and subjects and stuff like that. So, uh, if you haven't had a chance to check that out, I highly suggest that as well trying to think of anything else oh yeah who's your homicide is a promo that you just heard check them out they do nothing but indiana cases uh it's really really cool they did an episode that i uh had suggested on the uh speedway indiana bombings which was really fucking cool that dude was was really messed up it was pretty pretty interesting i didn't realize how deep that rabbit hole went but again you know the disclaimer i'm not a racist you know, I am going to tell you information about this civil war that you probably did not know because contrary to popular belief, the, uh, the union side of the war was not as clean as people would like to believe. Um, a lot of shit was put on the Confederacy, you know, like probably 90% of this war was about slavery. Uh, the other 10% was a very big gray area and it, it was very political as well. You know, I'm going to tell you some things. What I do tell you is fact. You know, don't be mad at me. <laughs> be mad at history, all right? Uh, just because I'm the, I'm the messenger, don't fucking shoot me, okay? Um, I will tell you this, though. History is written by the victors. The Union troops 
did just as much terror to innocent civilians as the Confederate troops did. I will tell you that shit right now. And just a tidbit of information, I have been very, very ill the last, uh, you know, four or five days, so my voice might sound a little weird. I do apologize. I was going to record this episode actually uh, about 48 hours ago. That did not happen. Um, I was not able to. But this will be a three-part episode. Part one and part two will be about his life. Uh, and part three will be about the conspiracy surrounding him. And it's not so much whether or not he faked his own death, but what he did with all that money he stole. Was he a degenerate gambler? Did he hide it in various places around the South and around the country? Or was he funding a secret organization that had an agenda solely based on the Confederacy rising again one day? Thank you for being patient. I hope you enjoy this. And uh, on with the show. This is an American Crime Cast production. Visit us at accproductions.org. And remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Just able barely to mount a horse and ride about a little in the spring of 1866, my life was threatened daily, and I was forced to go heavily armed. The whole country was then full of militia, robbing, plundering, and killing. Jesse Woodson James in his lifetime, he robbed 15 banks, 10 trains, 5 stagecoaches, killed 7 innocent unarmed men, and numerous others while in battle. What made Jesse James, Jesse James? This guy saw a lot of stuff. He grew up in Missouri. He was born and raised there. Missouri was a border state at the beginning of the Civil War. He saw things that nobody should have seen. And that includes somebody, you know, in their early teens. So I guess it begs the question, what made Jesse James want vengeance for every single thing that was done to him and his family? He had a deep hatred for the Union armies. Specifically, the Union militias that would occupy around Missouri. What were the things that happened? Jesse James, when he was a kid, wanted nothing more than to be a preacher. He literally wanted to preach the word of God. What made him go from that to being the most recognizable outlaw in American history? He robbed and killed for 15 years and was never caught. How did he escape so many times? What was it about Jesse James that made him Jesse James? You wanted a true crime episode, MC Nation. I got you a true crime episode. My name is Justin. This is Mysterious Circumstances. And you're listening to the life, death, and conspiracy of Jesse James. Jesse James, both in this country and abroad, is one of the best-known Americans of all Americans who ever lived at any time in any period. What we celebrate today, if celebrate's the right word, 
is the myth of Jesse James, not the reality of Jesse James. To be treated like the Jameses were treated demanded that vengeance be taken. I think he was perhaps a victim of the times and a victim of himself, of his own innate tendencies to like violent things and to be caught up in that kind of excitement. Jesse's most important mentor was William T. Anderson, Bloody Bill. In the company of these men, Jesse James would be schooled in violence and terror. They were simply out to punish their enemies, promoting fear as they went. Jesse and his companions, they're not satisfied just to kill the enemy. They will go in, they'll wade in, they'll break skulls, they'll slash throats. What they set out to do was to terrorize all of their enemies and potential enemies. This is one of the ultimate atrocities of the Civil War. A hundred and some men, helpless, disarmed, murdered in their tracks. It would have been a very terrible thing to see. Beheadings, uh, disembowelments, uh, torture, fiendish torture, men begging for their lives. Those bodies were, were pretty well mutilated up. Every man that took part in the Centralia Massacre witnessed something that would be impossible to forget. I don't know how they could have not been transformed. And Jesse would have been there. He would have seen this. He would have taken part. These were young men who were literally soaked in blood. Jesse James was immersed in the most savage kind of bloodshed conceivable. The horror of Centralia focused attention on Jesse's family, but Jesse wouldn't quit. First thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. I think he gloried in that attention. I think Jesse had a tremendous ego, and he loved reading about himself in the papers. And the national press took up the news. The New York Times, San Francisco, New Mexico, Chicago, Kentucky. The news spread everywhere. Jesse's just a little farm boy from western Missouri, and all of a sudden he's in newspapers across the country. It's a lot easier to buy into that legend than it is to take a long, hard look at yourself. Jesse James had to be Jesse James. What he was was a thief and a cold-blooded murderer. Before I get going, I got to give a huge shout out to Julie. Uh, without her help and research, I would not have been able to do this episode in the time frame that I did. There's so much to this guy's life. So much happened. So Julie, thank you very, very much. I'm one of those people who is extremely weird about asking people for help doing research. I like doing my own. I take pride in that because I know what I'm looking for. 
she did a phenomenal job. So, uh, Julie, again, thank you so, so much. So, Jesse Woodson James's parents were married on December 28, 1841. Uh, his dad, Robert, was a college-educated Baptist minister. He was a very avid reader and was known to have a huge library. His mother was Zerelda Cole. They were married in Kentucky. Now, in January of uh, 1843, Alexander Franklin James was born in Kearney, Missouri. He would go by the name Frank. In July On July 19th, 1845, Robert James Jr. was born. He would only last about a month before he passed away. On September 5th, 1847... Jesse Woodson James was born in Kearney, Missouri. Now, on November 25th, 1849, he had a younger sister, uh, Susan, that was born. And uh, I'm going to stick to a very strict timeline here, so I hope this ain't too boring for you guys. Now, the James family was very respectable. They were a prosperous family. Robert was a hemp and tobacco farmer which, uh, like I said, was very respectable for the time. They were slave owners uh, living on a border state when the Civil War did break out. They had seven slaves. Uh, it should be known, though, on a side note, that after, uh, you know, slavery was abolished and all that stuff, five out of the seven slaves that the James family did own actually stayed with them afterward. The James family did volunteer to pay them and they were more than happy to be paid help. They were literally part of the family and uh, the James boys along with Robert would be out there in the fields working right beside him. Um, you know, I'm not trying to justify slavery, but I do want it known that they were treated very well. Uh, when they were actual slaves. On about April 12, 1850, Jesse's father, Robert, is asked to captain a wagon train heading to California. They had just recently uh, discovered gold out there, so there's a lot of people heading out that way to, uh, you know, make their riches heading out to the fields and stuff. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but it's either on August 1st or the 18th. I did read both uh, dates. After drinking some contaminated water, Robert does get cholera. He does end up passing away in Placerville, California, and this really did affect the family quite a bit. I mean, the James boys were very tore up. This was their father. He was a minister. He was their rock. He was a phenomenal guy from every single account that I ever read. And that's not just from the James families. That is from people, you know, around the area that did know the James family back in that time. Now on September 10th or the 30th, I did read it two different dates in 1852. Zerelda does remarry. She remarries a uh, a neighbor who just happens to be a rich farmer by the name of Ben Sims. Now, this marriage, I think, was more for convenience. I do know that the boys did not get along with Ben very well. Zelda was very protective of Jesse and Frank and Susan after... Their father, Robert, did pass away, and I think this kind of bothered Ben. He was, 
you know, kind of an asshole towards them. So, I mean, they really didn't get along. So, in early of 1854, Zerelda goes and she files for divorce, which at the time was pretty much unheard of. So, before the divorce was ever even finalized, Ben just happens to die in a horse accident. And uh, about a year and a half later, on September 25th, Zelda remarries a guy named Dr. Archie Rubin Samuel. And Dr. Samuel was an awesome guy. He treated the boys very good. He treated Susan very good. He treated Zerelda very good. Him and Zerelda would actually end up being married for 60 years after that. And they would have four more kids together. And on a side note, they would actually have, or not they, but... Dr. Archie Reuben Samuel would have an illegitimate kid that was fathered by one of the slaves, and he went by the name Perry Samuel. And just so you guys know, he was raised just like one of the family. He wasn't not an outcast or anything like that. Zerelda pretty much forgave him, and he was just like one of the kids. Uh, no questions asked. He remained a part of the family. You know, by all accounts, the marriage was really, really good. Like I said, Reuben, uh, or Dark Dr. Archie, however you want to refer to him as, was really easygoing, and he actually was very encouraging of Frank and Jesse. Jesse, at this point in time, wanted to be a minister, and uh, Archie was all about that. He was he thought it was the greatest thing ever. Frank wanted to be a school teacher. He actually took after his father with his uh, reading. He was a very avid reader. And on a cool little side fact, it is noted that a lot of times when Frank and Jesse were robbing trains and banks, Frank would often quote Shakespeare, which I thought was a really cool fact. You know, all is going really, really good, but there's tension. There's a lot of tension in Missouri at this time. There's a lot of tension in the country at this time. And this is what I'm speaking of about six years later in about 1861 when the Civil War is breaking out. Now, Missouri is a border state. And for those of you not familiar with the American Civil War, there was literally a line drawn between the middle of the country going east to west. It was referred to as the Mason-Dixon line. The North being anti-slavery, they were the Union. The South being the Confederate States, which pretty much they wanted to secede. They did not want to be part of the Union. Their whole personal opinion of it was kind of like the Revolutionary War from America, like the taxation without representation. They didn't want to be ruled by somebody who didn't live their way of life. And another part of that was... As much as I hate saying it, a lot of people in the Confederacy were not viewed as important as people in the Union. So by them having slaves, that meant that they weren't at the bottom of the barrel. And I know that is a shitty thing to say, alright? But I'm just, I'm spitting facts here. Don't be mad at me, okay? But... You know, some of them th had that train of thought. I'm not saying everybody did, but some of them did. So when it came down to, you know, slavery being an issue, they literally separated the United States. They had a president for the Union. They had a separate president for the Confederate States down south. And this would be known coming to in 1861 as the American Civil War. 
it was very, very weird. And I hate saying the word weird, but it literally, you had people in the same household with different views. So when you see in history books, you know, it referred to as the brother against brother, you know, war and stuff like that. It truly was. There were brothers literally fighting against each other because of their different viewpoints and opinions about the secession of the southern states from the Union and the right to own slaves. And, you know, I hate, like I said, I hate saying that it's, it was a really fucking shitty thing, but it is a part of our history and it needs, you know, to be known. So there's a lot of stuff going on in Missouri specifically. And when I say specifically, I mean specifically right around the area where Jesse is being raised. There is so much going on. Missouri being a border state, and it was on the northern half of the border. So there were Union troops, you know, just rummaging through Missouri. And a lot of the Confederate sympathizers were not treated very well, all right, by Union militias and Union federal troops, because there was a huge difference. You had the federal troops, and then you had the smaller militias. Now, around the Kansas, uh, Missouri area, you had what was referred to on the Union side as Jayhawkers. They were anti-slavery you know, they were independent militias and they operated outside of the federal, you know, laws of war and stuff like that. And then on the Confederate side, you had what they referred to as bushwhackers. And these guys were, you know, pretty much the same thing, except they were Confederate sympathizers. Now, for the James family, since they were slave owners, they were Confederate sympathizers. And on May 4th, Frank, uh, Jesse's older brother at the age of 18, does join the Confederate Army. And he only lasted about a year before being discharged. I'm not really sure what he got discharged for. But in July of 1862, Frank joins up with a, you know, militant group referred to as Quantrill's Raiders. Now, this was led by a guy named William Quantrill. And for those of you who do not know who that is, I'm going to give you a brief history lesson just because it's important that you know who these people are and what's going on. Now, William Quantrill was a guy who pretty much roamed around the North for a really long time. You know, that's the kind of the best way to explain him. He was born in Ohio. His family uh, moved to Illinois. And he, believe it or not, I shit you not, this is, I mean, I don't give a fuck about this guy, nor do I really like him. But he was a teacher in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That is literally where I live. So I thought that was a pretty cool little fact, other than this guy being like a total asshole. You know, teachers weren't paid very well back then, kind of just like now. And uh, he really didn't have any money, so he ends up being a drifter. He kind of mauls around, like, the Kansas and Missouri area and Tennessee and Kentucky and stuff like that. And he ends up going to Texas. What makes this important is he meets up with a guy named Joel Mays. Now, Joel Mays is a half-Scots-Irish, half-Cherokee Indian Confederate sympathizer. And he is also a war chief of the Cherokee Nations in Texas. Now, this guy, Joel Mays, taught William Quantrill 
guerrilla warfare tactics. He taught them how to ambush. He taught them camouflage, sneak attacks. And they ended up with the uh, Cherokee nations, they ended up joining up with General Sterling Price. I believe they were fighting right around the Kentucky area. Well, Quantrill, for some reason, ends up deserting General Price, and he goes on this mission to form his own private army. He ends up forming Quantrill's Raiders. Another name that you are going to get very, very familiar with in the story of Jesse James in his very early years is a guy by the name of William Anderson, and he is known as Bloody Bill Anderson, and he is one of the very first 10 Raiders that Quantrill picked up. And like I said, I'm explaining this all to you because it does have context. These are the people that Jesse was around at a very early age, and I'll get to that part of the story, but it's important that you guys know who these people are. Now, Bloody Bill Anderson, like I said, is one of the very first raiders that Quantrill recruits. And he didn't even recruit him. He straight up volunteered. Now, the reason that Bloody Bill holds so much hatred for the Union, he was all about, all bullshit aside, he was a psychopath. I'm honestly surprised there's no true crime podcasts out of the 10,000 that there are now that have not done an episode on Bloody Bill Anderson because he was literally a, a psychopath. Now, a little bit of background on Bloody Bill and what made him this way. All right, and while, you know, Quantrill formed the Raiders and all that good stuff, you know, he's got a lot of backing and a lot of troops around the, you know, Missouri, Kansas area, you know, out of Kentucky and Tennessee and stuff like that. Now, Frank is riding around and he is with uh, the Quantrill's Raiders and they are doing a lot of bad shit, all right? And one of these things that they that they do is on August 21st, 1863, William Quantrill leads a massacre of Lawrence, Kansas. They go in, they rob two banks, they, lo they looted buildings, they set them on fire, they killed 180 men, women, and children. Now, Frank was a known member and did participate in this. Jesse, on the other hand, later in his years, he did brag about being a part of this, but there's no actual proof that he was with them. So we can't say for certain that he was a part of this, but Frank definitely was. Now, I know you guys are sitting back saying, holy shit, like what's up with this Lawrence, Kansas massacre? Pretty much what it was, was this was the base of operations for a lot of the attacks going into Missouri, which was right in Clay County where the James family homestead was. Now, I'm not trying to justify any of the Lawrence attack or what is referred to as a massacre because, in all honesty, that's exactly what it was, but... The Lawrence Massacre was direct retaliation for a few things. One of those things being what they refer to as the Burning of Osceola, Missouri, which happened in September of 1861. Now, there's a general, I believe, a Union general by the name of James Lane, and his troops drive off 
all these small southern forces, okay? They go into Osceola, Missouri, and they freed 200 slaves, took 350 horses, took 400 head of cattle, 3,000 bags of flour, and they took all the carriages and wagons. That's understandable. I get that. But what these Union troops also did was they looted everything. They had a makeshift trial for nine local innocent men and executed them on the spot. And on top of that, their artillery battery shelled and destroyed St. Clair County Courthouse. And I shit you not, out of 800 buildings in this town, 797 of them were burned to the ground. Did you hear me right? 797 out of 800 buildings were burned to the ground. These were not all Southern sympathizers. These were innocent civilians, too. This town literally never fully recovered from this. It was complete chaos. And above that, they depopulated four counties around the surrounding area. They literally told all these people to get up, move, and then they destroyed everything in four counties. Now, granted, I can understand if these people were slave-owning Southern sympathizers. Understandable. That's war. That's how it goes sometimes. But a lot of these people were innocent civilians that were just trying to farm their land and make a living and get by day to day. Well, that is one of the main reasons that the Lawrence Massacre occurred. It was re direct retaliation for that. Another reason that the Lawrence Massacre occurred, and just so you know, to put this in context, all of this is going around right around the time that Jesse James is 14, 15, and 16 years old. He's living through all of this stuff, and he's starting to get a real real hatred for Union militias and Union federal troops. He doesn't know how to really handle it. Another reason the Lawrence Massacre did happen is not only because of the burning of Osceola, Missouri, and the fact that it was a base of operations for attacks into Missouri, but because of something that happened on August 13th. What they did in Lawrence, Kansas was... A bunch of Union Federal troops rounded up young girls and women and they made a makeshift jail and they put them all in this jail and accused them of aiding all these militia groups, specifically Quantrill's Raiders. This happened like a couple weeks prior of them getting put into jail. But on August 13th, this building collapsed and it is pretty well assumed you know it's 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 disputed but a lot of historians say that this was intentional that the union armies collapsed this three-story brick building on purpose that housed all these young girls and women inside of it and what happens is it ended up killing four young women and injuring a whole bunch more and when I say young women, I mean some of them were as young as 8 and 10 years old, okay? I want you to remember these names that I'm going to tell you. Because some of the dead and crippled 
One of them who died was a 14-year-old by the name of Josephine Anderson. Another person who was crippled, uh, her legs were completely crushed, was a young girl 10 years old by the name of Martha Anderson. And another one who had her back broken and had facial lacerations, uh, who was pretty much mauled and crippled for life, was a young girl by the age of 16 named Molly Anderson. Now, like I said, Quantrill's men, and it's not just his men that thought this was intentional. A lot of people thought this was planned. Even though this attack on Lawrence, Kansas was probably already previously planned because of the burning of Osceola, Missouri, you can't really say that this, uh, you know, the collapse of this makeshift jail and the killing and maiming of all these young girls and women was the reason of the attack because it was probably already planned ahead of time. But that is why the Lawrence massacre happened because of those events right there. Now, the reason all this is important and those three names that I told you were important all by the last name of Anderson is because Bloody Bill Anderson, like I had mentioned, was one of the very first 10 people that joined Quantrill's Raiders. And because of what was done to him and his family, he hated the Union. Absolutely hated him. And here's a little background on Bloody Bill Anderson, okay? He was born in Kentucky. He eventually moved to Missouri when he was a younger kid. Now, when the Civil War started, he was living in Kansas. Now, after William Quantrill's raid on uh, Aubrey, Kansas... On March 7th, 1862, uh, some Union federal troops were sent out to investigate. Okay, and they were basically out to interrogate and find out a bunch of information. And what happens is all of the Southerners around that area, whether they were involved or not, were openly accused of helping the Raiders. Two of these people who were openly accused were Bloody Bill Anderson's father and uncle. On March 11th, Bill himself was gone with his younger brother Jim and they were delivering cattle. Now, when they returned home, uh, they found that their dad and uncle had been hanged outside the house. Their house was burnt to the ground, but not before every single thing that belonged to them was stolen. That is why Bloody Bill Anderson hated the Union and why he joined Quantrill's Raiders two days later. He literally went and tracked down Quantrill and joined him because of this event right here. Now, when Bloody Bill was asked why he joined Quantrill, he simply said, and I quote, I have chosen guerrilla warfare to revenge myself for wrongs that I could not honorably revenge otherwise. I lived in Kansas when this war commenced. Because I would not fight the people of Missouri, my native state. The Yankees sought my life, but failed to get me. They revenged themselves by murdering my father and destroying all of my property. So, after Bloody Bill goes through this little thing right here, and then deals with what happened in Lawrence, Kansas with his three sisters. This guy was known for his brutality after this. And when I say psychopath, I mean psychopath. 
All right. So now that you have some of that knowledge of the people who were pretty much around Frank and Jesse and the situation going on at the times, literally there are militia groups and even federal union troops that are just plundering and pillaging and burning entire towns to the fucking ground. All right. This is literally war right in Jesse's backyard. And all this is going on right about the time he was 15 years old. So in late 1863, because of the Lawrence massacre, Union soldiers show up on Jesse James's farm. Obviously, Frank is gone. You know, he's there with his stepdad, uh, Archie Samuel, and his mom, Zerelda. They have, I believe, another sister by this point in time. And Zerelda herself is also eight months pregnant. Well, what these Union troops do pretty much instills the hatred that Jesse James carried for the rest of his life. They show up on the James farm and they want information on William Quantrill's camp, where they are camping at, where they are located, any kind of information that they can get. Well, Jesse, whether he knew where they were or not, couldn't give them information. Maybe he did, maybe he knew where they were at and he didn't give them information. But either way, these Union troops horsewhipped him and beat him, almost unconscious. And he's a 15-year-old kid. Now, while Jesse is coming to, what he sees is that they drug his stepfather out into the woods. And they were torturing him repeatedly. They were horsewhipping him. They were beating him. And what they were doing was they were hanging him repeatedly. And what they would do was they would take a rope and they had him in a noose. And they would pick him up off the ground and choke him till he was almost unconscious they would drop him again torture him some more interrogate him a little bit more and if he had information or, or didn't have information we don't know but they did this repeatedly then they took Zerelda and arrested her and put her in jail being eight months pregnant they wouldn't even let Zerelda out of jail until she signed an oath of allegiance to the union. But I can tell you right now, as soon as they let her out, there was no rules that she was abiding by. And this pretty much, like I said, fueled Jesse like no other. Now, Jesse is seeing all this. His stepdad, Archie, did not die. Believe it or not, he did not die. But he suffered severe brain damage after the torture, and the the repeated hangings. So he was never really the same after that. He actually ended up dying in an asylum, you know, roughly about 55 years later, which is just, I mean, this is what Jesse saw. And this is why he carried that hatred for these Union troops and the Union in general. For Jesse, it was not about slavery. It was personal. It was a personal war for him and his family against every single Union soldier that ever fucking lived. He would do anything in his power to just wreak havoc on anything affiliated with the Union. 
from that point on until he died. Because here's the deal. At this point in time, you didn't have anything but your name and your land and your family. If you didn't do something about an incident like this, if you didn't make it known that, you know, you were not going to stand for disrespect, you couldn't literally hold your head up as a man. So he goes on a vendetta. Now, in, in early of 1864, this is literally just like a few months later, he ends up joining up with the one and only Bloody Bill Anderson. And this is his mentor. Now, at this point in time, Jesse or Frank couldn't really join any kind of Confederate army, any kind of legit Confederate army, because they were already all driven out of Missouri. If there was any way for them to fight, they had to join a militia group. They had to join the bushwhackers, the guerrilla fighters. And the shit that they do and the shit that Jesse sees, man, pretty much transformed him into the Jesse James that we know today. So while Jesse is riding with Bloody Bill Anderson and his little unit within Quantrill's Raiders, he does learn those same guerrilla tactics that William Quantrill had previously learned and passed down to all the people in those units. Now, Bloody Bill's unit was never any more than 80 guys. And these 80 guys literally wreaked havoc all over Missouri and Kansas. I mean, they were making a name for themselves. Now, when Jesse shows up, he's 16 years old. He's about 120 pounds. He's about five foot six, little baby faced. And, you know, some of these guys are like, you know, what the hell is this kid doing around here? Well, they learned pretty damn quick that Jesse James was not to be trifled with. He quickly built a reputation for being just as ruthless as anybody else in that unit right there. And what this all amounted to was what they refer to as the Centralia Massacre. It is literally regarded as one of the most heinous acts during the Civil War. And Jesse James was right in the middle of it, and he was right directly involved in it. Now, on September 27th, 1864, at about 9 a.m., what happens is Bloody Bill and his 80 men or so go into Centralia, Missouri. It was a pretty small town. There was only about a dozen one-story buildings, but there was a new train depot. Um, they pretty much go through the town, and they're just looting, robbing houses, uh, drinking, just pretty much doing whatever they did they they had no reason either they were just doing it to do it uh about an hour later uh stagecoach arrives the guerrillas rob all the passengers and you know pretty much strike fear in the heart of everybody beat a few people up and stuff but then a train comes in and they board this train and they rob it of thousands of dollars worth of newly printed money. But what's also on this train is 23 Union soldiers that are on leave. Uh, they are just coming back home to visit because, like I said, Missouri was a, was a border state. So you had Union and Confederate people all living right there in the same areas. They could have been neighbors. 
So there's a bunch of, you know, Union soldiers, 23 of them that are on this train coming home on leave. They're all unarmed. Now, Bloody Bill gets on the train and he starts questioning the troops. And uh, he told them about uh, Union soldiers who had killed and scalped some of his men previously. So what Bloody Bill and these guys do is they round up these 23 soldiers that are unarmed on leave and they take them out to the platform in front of the train. Two of them actually hesitated and took too long and they were immediately shot. So the rest of them go outside. Uh, they had them stand on the platform and they made them take off their uniforms because what these guerrillas did specifically bloody bill uh you know and jesse and frank james and stuff what they what they used to do was they would take union uh uniforms and they would use them for later they would wear these uniforms and act like they were union soldiers and get closer to units and literally just annihilate them okay so you can never say these guys were stupid they were very very smart now they got them all on the platform and they took one guy, uh, they left him alive, he was supposed to be for a prisoner exchange, and some of the other guys were, like, pleading with Bloody Bill, and, you know, saying, why are you doing this? We didn't do anything to you. And Bloody Bill straight up tells him, and I quote, You Federals have just killed six of my men, scalped them, and left them on the prairie. I will show you that I can kill men with as much skill and rapidly as anybody. From this time on, I ask no quarter and give none. Again, these Union soldiers are like, dude, we did not scalp any of your troops. We had nothing to do with that. Anderson looks at him and says, and I quote, You are Federals, and Federals scalped my men and carried their scalps on their saddle bows. I have never allowed my men to do such things. That was pretty much the end of the conversation. What they did was they executed every single one of those unarmed Union troops on that platform. After they killed them, they would walk by the bodies. Um, they slit all their throats. They bashed their faces in with, uh, you know, the butts of their rifles. And then they went back on the train and robbed all the passengers on the train. Two of them were actually too slow giving up their money, so they got killed immediately as well. Now, while this is going on, after it happens, the 80 guerrillas got done, and they regrouped with uh, a couple other guerrillas, and there was about at least 200 of them. So we have about 280 total guerrilla fighters here, 80 of which being directly under Bloody Bill Anderson. Now a scout comes by and tells uh tells Bloody Bill, he says, hey, there's Federal Union Army approaching, okay? And this army was the 39th Missouri Infantry, okay? And it was led by a guy named Major A.V. Johnston. When the 39th Missouri Infantry comes into Centralia. They notice like all these burned buildings and then they see the bodies of the unarmed Union troops that were executed from the train. So Major Johnston leads 120 men to go search for these guerrilla fighters and he leaves 33 men behind. And what ends up happening is... 
because of the guerrilla warfare tactics, Bloody Bill Anderson sets this trap. He leaves two guys out in the open. Major Johnston falls for it and his troops and leads them right into a trap. And what's happening is Major Johnston's troops only have rifles. They really don't have any revolvers and they're shooting downhill. So they're missing a lot of these shots. Now with that, they have reload time and they're not reloading fast enough. And what happens is Bloody Bill Anderson's 80 guerrillas, Jesse James included, charge up this hill on their horses with revolvers. They had three, four, five, six revolvers hanging off their bodies at a time. And they were only like 36 or 38 caliber revolvers. They were lightweight. They were whatever, but they didn't have the reload time. If one pistol like ran out of ammo they would they wouldn't have to reload it they just grabbed another one and kept shooting so if one of the gorillas had three revolvers compared to one rifle he had 18 shots compared in the time that it took to reload one rifle shot and pretty much what ensued is the centralia massacre they killed everybody Bloody Bill and his guys ambushed them. Jesse himself was credited with killing eight men. One of those men was Major A.V. Johnston himself. All right. And this is when Jesse James is like 17 years old. That's crazy. But that's not even the worst part of it. You know, while this is going on, what they're doing with these small caliber revolvers is they're shooting them off their horses. As they were lying on the ground, they would go by and put one or two bullets in their head to finish them off. And this is not bullshit either. This is Union Medical Records. Like this happened. All these shots were headshots, which means that whether these guys were alive and de or dead before they were shot off of their horses, each single one of them got at least one or two rounds to the head to ensure that they were dead. While this fighting is going on, one Union officer grabbed one of the bushwhackers' horses, you know, by the bridle, and he was trying to plead for his life. He was begging for his life. He says, I always spare prisoners. The bushwhacker looked directly at him and said, I never do. Shot him right square in the head. He's dead. They're just going around these Union troops, and just annihilating them. After this was all done, Bloody Bill Anderson and his men at this point were drunk on blood. They rounded up all the bodies into small little piles, and they were dancing on them. They would take their bayonets, shove them through their body, and stick them to the ground. They took trophies. They would cut off their ears. They would cut off their noses. There were 17 Union soldiers that were scalped that day. They took those scalps and they hung them on their their horse bridles uh, to show them off as trophies. And not only that, and this is confirmed by Union medical records, they hacked them up into pieces and literally threw body parts all over the place. And not just body parts, but they decapitated these guys and went around and placed different heads on different bodies. And it is literally stated that not one man who was killed in this massacre out of 150 Union troops had the same head 
that he showed up with that day. One guy had his genitalia cut off and shoved in his mouth. There was no mercy. And Jesse James was right in the thick of it. Like I said, eight confirmed kills, one of them being the major A.V. Johnston himself. They were celebrating. And this is the atmosphere. This is the shit that Jesse James was around that he had been accustomed to. He had become very comfortable with violent things. Now, after all this happened, about a month later in October of 1864, it was literally about, like I said, about a month after Centralia Massacre, uh, Bloody Bill himself gets ambushed in Independence, Missouri by a guy uh, named Cox. Pretty much the Union Army hired this Indian tracker to track him down and ambush him and kill him. And when they do ambush him, most of these guerrillas are killed. Most of Bloody Bill's men. Bloody Bill himself does die. He is, when he is killed, he is taken on display. He is trotted around like a trophy. He is put on display in the courthouse. And later that night, after all the hoopla is done and over with, he is decapitated. Now, Jesse James and a few others escape. Uh, that includes Frank as well. Now, on May 10th, 1865, Quantrill's raiders, William Quantrill himself, are ambushed by Union Army. Quantrill is shot twice and he ends up dying about a month later from those wounds. Now all the others were killed or captured. Uh, Jim Younger, a future member of the James Younger gang, uh, was captured. Jesse escapes and he makes it all the way to Lexington, Missouri. When he does get away, at about this time in 1865, the war is pretty much over. It's not going on anymore. There's no battle. Well, what happens is Jesse James starts riding towards Union troops with a white flag. He's ready to surrender. He's ready to just go about his regular life. He's done fighting. You know, he understood he has been defeated and there's no fighting back anymore because there's hardly anybody left. Now, while Jesse's carrying this white flag heading towards the Union troops to surrender, what they do is they shoot him off of his horse. And when they walk up to him, they ask him to pledge his allegiance to the Union. Jesse James is shot in the chest, specifically in the lung. He's bad. He's real bad off right now. And they're asking him to pledge allegiance. And when he refuses to do it, they turn around and leave him to die. Now, Jesse ends up crawling away. And he makes it to uh, some relative's house. It would be his mother's sister's uh, house where he is nursed back to health by his cousin, Z Mims. And she is called Z because her real name is Zerelda. Because she is literally named after Jesse's mother. And the two fall in love while he's getting nursed back to health by her. Jesse's mother, Zerelda, of course, was very, very opposed to the relationship, as, uh, you know, you could imagine. Now, this was not unheard of back in this time period, but it is a little disturbing to think that, uh, you know, Jesse James was a cousin fucker. It, uh, you know, it's a little, little weird. Okay, a little weird, like direct first cousin. 
but he didn't care. She didn't care. They fell in love. They became engaged uh, not too long after that. So in early February in 1866, after Jesse is, is healthy and gets back home and everything like that, the James boys meet up with Cole Younger, and they decide to start planning their very first bank robbery. And that would happen on February 13th of 1866. Frank, Jesse, Cole Younger, Jim Younger, Rob, Clay County, Savings Bank, in Liberty, Missouri. Now, there is a 17-year-old that was killed during the retreat, and it should be known historically that this was the first peacetime bank robbery in American history, let alone it was daylight when they robbed this bank. And they made away, these four guys, with $62,000. In today's money, that would equal to $912,000. They made almost a million dollars in one bank robbery. And they were good for about six, seven, eight months until October 30th, 1866. Five members of the gang robbed Alexander Mitchell and Company Bank in, in Lexington, Missouri. They stole $2,000 in today's money. That would be about $30,000. There's still debate on whether Jesse was a part of that one or not, but it's commonly accepted that he was. There's a lot of people that debate it because they say that both of the James brothers were actually out of town and out of state, for that matter, when this robbery did occur. Now, in 1866-1867 is when the James boys start getting their reputation. What happens is a reporter for the Kansas City Times named John Newman Edwards starts writing articles about the James brothers and the younger brothers and their little gang and he starts portraying them as heroes and that they were robin hoods and stealing rich and giving to the poor they were stealing from the union armies that just totally destroyed all their lands and families and was giving it back to you know all the poor people in the confederacy that were trying to literally and i shit you not literally rebuild their entire lives back up again all right you know there's no evidence out there that jesse james ever gave any money to anybody who was in need of it okay there's one story that says you know uh jesse and frank james go to water their horses at this woman's farm you know she goes to feed them and she's crying while she's cooking the food. The James brothers notice this and they ask her what's wrong. And she says that, uh, you know, I'm about to be foreclosed on on my land. I don't have any money. So the James brothers give her the money to pay off the debt to the landowner. When she pays off the debt, a few hours later, they catch up with that said landowner and rob him and take their money back. Now, there's no actual evidence that this ever occurred. It's a great, great story. Don't get me wrong. I wanted it to be true, but it unfortunately probably was not. Now, on March 2nd, 1867, they rob Judge John McLean Banking House in Savannah, Missouri. On May 22nd, 1867, 12 gang members 
Rob Hughes and Wasson Bank in Richmond, Missouri. Three men are killed and they steal $4,000, which is just about $59,000 to $60,000 in today's money. On March 20th, 1868, they rob Nimrod Long Banking Company in Russellville, Kentucky. One guy was wounded, nobody was killed, and they ended up making out with $14,000, which would be right about $206,000 in today's money. December 7th, 1869 is probably when Jesse James really makes a name for himself. Before this, Jesse was only a known associate of the gang. He was never implicated in any actual robberies, all right? And what happens is they go and they rob the Davies County Savings in Gallatin, Missouri. And they rob this specific bank because it is supposedly ran by the guy with the last name of Cox, who was the guy who was hired by the Union Federal soldiers to hunt down and kill Bloody Bill Anderson, they go in there, and Cox was not in there at the time. They end up shooting and killing a guy named John Sheets, and then a guy named William McDowell was wounded while he was running out the door. Now, they only ended up with about $700, which was $10,000 in today's money, but this right here is when people start taking notice of Jesse James. And there is a $3,000 reward put on his head, dead or alive, which would equal to about $44,000 in today's money. So it is official at the age of 22, Jesse James is a wanted man. But that doesn't stop him. On June 3rd, 1871, just a couple years later, four members of the James Younger gang rob Okabach Brothers Bank, and they steal about $6,000, which would equal to about, you know, I think $400,000 in today's money. The list goes on and on and on and on. They do all these robberies. There are some killings. There's some woundings. But in 1874, because of John Newman Edwards from the Kansas City Times, these guys are traveling freely throughout Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri. They have friends. There's a former bushwhacker, a guy that they served with in the guerrilla army, that is a sheriff in Kentucky. The people love the James brothers because they are regarded as heroes. They are regarded as the little guys, the underdogs that are fighting against the big corporations that took all this land and, you know, raped and pillaged and plundered and did all this shit during the Civil War. So the James brothers are, are just, they're fine. They travel freely during the day. Nobody bothers them, even with these huge bounties on their heads. Didn't even matter. It gets to the point where in 1874, their mom, Zerelda, who, by the way, was seriously badass and probably one of the most hardcore people for her, for an old lady that I have had the chance to, you know, get to research. But in 1874, Zerelda starts giving interviews. And in these interviews, she openly threatens anybody who will pinpoint their sons in any kind of robbery. 
you know, she doesn't care. She's like, you know, these are my boys. You going to pinpoint him or identify him in a robbery? I'll fucking kill you myself. Just legit, okay? But it is also about this time in 1874 where the political aspect starts coming into play. A lot of Southerners and former Southern sympathizers start gaining back seats in the government. So, I mean... All this stuff that Jesse has been wanting is starting to finally happen. Like, it's starting to mix up a little bit. You know, they had been shunned at first. Like, anybody who was a Confederate sympathizer, you know, basically considered Democratic. The Democrat, like, a lot of the Democrats back then were pro-slavery. So, they were starting to gain back seats in the federal government. So, I mean, Jesse was pretty happy about this. And it is also in 1874 that some of the express companies from the trains and stagecoaches and all this shit, they get tired of getting all their shit stolen. I mean, it got to the point where Jesse James would use a fake name, put a bunch of bonds and gold on a train, and he would insure all that through insurance companies. And what he would do was he would go and rob the train get his money back, and then go and collect the insurance policies under his fake name that he had used to do the insurance policy, which is pretty smart for the time. Now, there weren't very many pictures of the James boys back then. I mean, there weren't very many pictures, period. But still, that's pretty damn ingenious. So all these express companies who are getting their trains and stagecoaches robbed, they start getting pissed and they're so fucking tired of the James boys and the younger boys stealing all of their shit. They literally cannot take anything south without it getting robbed. So they hire the Pinkertons. And for those of you not familiar with the Pinkerton Detective Agency, they were it. I mean, they were the they were the ones that tracked down H.H. Holmes, okay? They were known to find their men. You know, Pinkerton, I mean, he personally hated the James boys, all right? Now, what ends up happening is on March 10th, 1874, the Pinkertons send an undercover agent by the name of Joseph Witcher, and he arrives in Clay County, Missouri, and what he does is he gets off the train, he goes to the local sheriff, and he says, listen, I'm an undercover agent. I need to know where the James farm is. And, uh, you know, this is what's going on. You know, we're trying to capture him. The sheriff straight up says, do not go out there. If you go out there, those boys will kill you. And if they don't kill you, their mother will. Well, Joseph did not listen. He goes out there. And the next day, his body is found with... Four holes in its chest and two in his head with a note pinned to the body saying, this is what happens when detectives come looking for the James boys. And that right there pisses Pinkerton off. He takes it personal. He starts using his own money to start looking for the James boys. Like that's how, that's how serious he was taking it. And on a side note, On April 23rd, 1874, Jesse ends up marrying his uh, fiance of about eight to nine years now, uh, Z Mims, and they marry in Kansas City. They actually took a little honeymoon in Galveston, Texas. 
very romantic, uh, first cousins and all, you know. And also right around this time in April, I mean, the, the honeymoon didn't last long, okay? Uh, in April 1874, uh, they start robbing stagecoaches, more stagecoaches. There's so many more bank robberies. I mean, it would literally be an hour-long episode just to state all the bank robberies, stagecoach robberies, train robberies that they did have. Going back to the Pinkertons, okay? Now, because of the death of this undercover agent that the Pinkertons had sent in that ended up killed. What they do is a few Pinkertons show up in Clay County and they grab a couple locals too. On January 26th, 1875, they get word from a local that the James boys are at their home, you know, where their mother lived, where they were born and raised and all that. Now, earlier that day, part of the James house was attempted to be set on fire. Now the fire was put out. They literally just tore the boards out of the fucking house uh, to put the fire out. It was no big deal, but they show back up a little bit after midnight and they were thinking that the James boys were in there. So the Pinkerton agents, I think there was like four of them uh, with about four or five locals from Clay County. They tried to flush the James boys out. And what they do is they throw a bunch of incendiary devices like flares into the windows. And Zerelda, you know, she's in there with her young kids. She has an eight-year-old son, you know, the James's half-brother in there, uh, Archie Jr. He's in there and, you know, she sees these flares and these explosive devices coming in through the window. Well... There were other people in there as well, so she grabs one of these things and tries to... I read two different accounts. I read one that she tried to throw it out the window. The other one I read, she goes to throw it in the fire because she didn't know it was an explosive device. She thought it was only like a flare, and they were trying to burn her out of the house. So she grabs this, and as she grabs it, it was right by her 8-year-old son, the James boys' half-brother Archie, and it explodes. And it blew off her right arm and killed their half-brother Archie. Now, the locals are pissed. Now, they're sitting here saying, listen, we don't agree with what the James boys are doing. But this right here is going too far. You maimed an elderly woman. You killed a child. You guys are law enforcement. This is not right. This needs to stop now. And if you thought the James boys were pissed before, oh man, you have no idea. And on that note, because my voice is starting to give out, because I've been sick for so long, and I did have to break this up into two episodes because Jesse James lived such a crazy life, I hope you guys enjoyed part one. Till then, see you on the flip side. 